If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. We want to look at verses 16 and 17. You say you think there's enough information there to get a sermon out of? I think so. Lord, we ask your blessing now as the ministry of the Word goes forth. Help me to teach accurately and clearly. Clearly. May we clearly understand uh, the text and make the appropriate application uh, to our lives today. So we commit our time in the Word to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as far as uh, the... Um, Outline of the book, you note on the overhead there, we are still in the prologue, uh, prologue here. The, the first 17 verses uh, constitute the prologue. And uh, today we are closing out the prologue in verses 16 and 17. These are what we might call the theme verses, the key verses of the entire book. Uh, some have called Romans 1, 16 and 17 the text of which the rest of the book of Romans is the exposition Sometimes it is debated as to whether the theme of Romans should be called the gospel of God or the righteousness of God. Well, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel believed, so this really makes for a very tight unit. Paul began this letter by introducing himself in reference to the gospel. I mean, the very first line, the very first sentence. Uh, And then he was off and running. Uh, The rest of his introduction in the prologue is really about how he relates to the gospel. In a sense, you could say, for Paul to live is the gospel. As an apostle, he was separated to the gospel, verse 1. This gospel was promised in the prophetic scriptures, verse 2. This gospel concerns Jesus Christ, who with power was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, verses 3 and 4. Paul's apostleship was for the obedience of faith among all Gentiles, verse 5. Paul served God in the gospel, verse 9, and Paul, with everything in him, desired to come to Rome and preach the gospel, verses 13 through 15. And that brings us to the climactic point of Paul's introductory prologue, where he succinctly, but in a concentrated way, makes the point of his entire gospel ministry. And let's read it together. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also to, for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The word for, as he starts out there, verse 16, the word for is a connector word, uh, connecting his thought to what he has just said regarding his desire to come to Rome and preach the gospel. Now, why would Paul say he is not ashamed? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, you understand in these days, uh, it was becoming very dangerous to openly identify as a Christian or promote the truth of Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, you understand, had been rejected by his own people, the Jews. They had despised him, called for his crucifixion. The Romans had then put him to death on the cross as a common criminal, showing the dominance of Rome. Uh, You know, people look at the cross and say, well, we don't see the lordship of Christ here. We see the lordship of Rome. Uh, Rome's in charge. See what they did to him? Rome is over Christ, the one called Christ. I mean, the world would think that. When Paul showed up in Rome, he called for the Jewish leaders. He wanted to talk to them. And here is what they told him. The end of the book of Acts, chapter 28. But we desire to hear from you what you think. This is the Jews talking to Paul, the Jews in Rome. For concerning this sect, that is the Christian movement, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. This is a reputation of Christianity. It's a bad thing everywhere. That's the reputation of Christianity everywhere in the, in the Roman Empire. You know, that could put pressure on a person to be a little ashamed. The threat of humiliation, the threat of persecution made for a challenging situation. The cross was a symbol, after all, of shame and embarrassment. The Romans gloried in raw power. The Greeks gloried in intellectual philosophy the Jews in their religious heritage, but Christians gloried in a person who died on a cross. And to be sure, that is not the full story. But it was a major part of it. John MacArthur says, while excavating ancient ruins in Rome, archaeologists discovered a derisive painting 
depicting a slave bowing down before a cross with a jackass hanging on it. The caption then reads, Alexamenos worships his God. That's what they thought of it. But Paul was not hesitant because of ridicule. He was not intimidated by the threat of persecution, by the power of the Roman government. He wanted to be on record for boldly being up to the challenge. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Doesn't matter the threats, doesn't matter the intimidation. He declares strongly that he is not ashamed of the gospel. William Newell writes, Talk of your brave men, your great men, O world. Where in all history can you find one like Paul? Alexander, Caesar, and Napoleon marched with the protection of their armies to enforce their will upon men. Paul was eager to march with Christ alone to the center of this world's greatness entrenched under Satan with the word of the cross, which he himself said is to the Jews an offense and to the Gentiles foolishness. But he was coming boldly with that message. Now, Paul was human. He wrote to the Corinthians that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul experienced these human emotions, but the thing is, he did not let them dictate his action. Rather, resolute commitment to the gospel mission drove him. He may have been afraid at times, but he did not let that deter him. And he told Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And then he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings. This is why you might want to back off and kind of just go easy. Uh, the threat of suffering. Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God. Now, Paul knew that if a person steps out in faithfulness for the gospel, that it is there the power of God strengthens a person and empowers them to stand for gospel truth. In Romans 1, 14 through 16, we have what we call the three great gospel I am's of Paul. Notice what he says there. I am a debtor to share the gospel. I am ready to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and in my New King James, it says, of Christ. But that's really not in the older manuscripts, uh, the, that qualifier of Christ. Um, he just says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But as noted in verse 3, and then again in verse 9, this gospel concerns God's Son, who is clearly stated to be Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lots of ways that one can be ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes just being quiet. We can be ashamed because we are afraid of what people will think or say. I mean, if I speak up for Christ right now, uh, it might not go well. And so we can be ashamed. Now, of course, we want to be wise, and sometimes the appropriate action is to not cast your pearls before swine. But at other times, it's just being yellow to not speak up. To not take a stand for the true gospel in the face of gospel compromise is a form of being ashamed. To seek unity over gospel truth may be a form of being ashamed. Whenever we are too cowardly to stand for the truth of the gospel, we are in a sense being ashamed of it. Christ died for us. We should not be ashamed of him. And yet we all feel the pressure, and it is a constant challenge to know the balance of being wise and being bold. But, and just like the early church, we need to be praying for boldness. We need Holy Spirit boldness. We need God's help to be bold. Now, the word gospel literally means good message or good news. This is the good news of God, as seen in verse 1, which concerns God's Son, verses 3 and 4. The gospel good news is not merely about Jesus, but it is Jesus himself. He himself is the good news which of course includes what he has done. Who is he? He is Lord. He is Savior. That's who he is. He is the God who saves. And he does that by virtue of what he has done for us on the cross. 
But it is essential that we understand the gospel as being both a person, who Jesus is, and the work of Christ, what he has done for us on the cross. Alva McLean says, if somebody should ask, what is the gospel? We ought to answer, the gospel is not what, it is who. That is precisely the emphasis that Paul has made up to this point in the prologue. I mean, it has essentially been all about who Jesus is. Now, he is going to develop out of that what he has done, and he's going to get to that shortly. Now, true enough, uh, that, that is the case. Uh, it, is, it is all about Christ's satisfactory work. Uh, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, but it's also 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that in the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. We see who he is. This is really where the Gospels start. It's uh, in the main where the Gospels start, who Jesus is. I mean, at the height of his ministry, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? This is key. The climax of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Luke, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, who he is, the Son of God, who he is, and the believing, you may have life in his name. Everything builds on this. I mean, salvation is of the Lord, and if Jesus is not the Lord, he can't be the Savior. The what builds on the who. And it is the who that makes the gospel what it is. The reason Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Now, Paul knew this message was nothing to be ashamed about. He had experienced its life-changing power in his own life. I mean, he shares his testimony again and again. Book of Acts, three times we have his testimony brought out by Luke. Uh, He shares it in Philippians chapter 3 and on and on. And then everywhere he has gone on his missionary journeys in the last 20 years, he has seen its power on display as people came to saving faith through the preaching of the gospel and their lives were changed. Something this powerful, something this life-changing, something this effective is nothing to be ashamed of. Rather, this is cause to be bold in standing for the truth of the gospel. If you realize what the gospel can do in people's lives as they believe it, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Now, I think this is why Paul said in verse 13 that he was fully anticipating seeing some gospel fruit in Rome just as he had seen everywhere else he had gone preaching among the Gentiles. It works everywhere it is preached and believed. The word power is the Greek word dynamis, from which we get our English words dynamite and dynamic. This message is living and powerful as the Holy Spirit makes it come alive in the hearts of people. There is no other spirit-empowered message like this one. God is powerfully at work wherever the gospel of Christ goes forth. He works spiritual miracles through it. The power in view is life-transforming power. It has the power to bring about salvation to everyone who believes it. The word salvation is a broad word meaning deliverance. That's what salvation means, deliverance. The power of God unto deliverance to everyone who believes. The gospel of Christ believed results in deliverance. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance from the power of sin, and ultimately deliverance from the very presence of sin. It includes the themes of justification, sanctification, and glorification. It is the gospel alone that is powerful to deliver. People, they need need change. A lot of people realize they need change, but they don't want gospel change. The power to affect salvation is not education, social reform, politics, religion, rituals, baptism, sacraments, good works, spiritual leaders, a church, or whatever you can name. A huge error in many churches that claim to be Christian, what I call Christendom, you know, the big umbrella, of whoever claims to be Christian, but a huge error under this, uh, under this umbrella of Christendom is the heresy of baptismal regeneration, which is the idea that baptism is involved in saving a person. 
This is not only an error of the Roman Catholic Church, but also of many so-called Protestant churches. But I want you to note that Paul made the gospel alone the basis for salvation. He made faith alone in the gospel alone the basis for salvation. The gospel is what Christ alone has done for us. We make no contribution to the gospel other than the sinning which made it necessary. Notice uh, as Paul is uh, reviewing the gospel with the Corinthians, what he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So that's what he's talking about, the gospel. And he says what it is in verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, in fulfillment of the prophetic Old Testament scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Note, this is all Jesus doing. We didn't do anything about our sin problem. Jesus did. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. This is all Je- the gospel is all about Jesus. And then he goes on to say, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the response that is necessary. We must believe the gospel. So the gospel message is what Christ has done for us. It's nothing about what we do, including baptism. Now, the gospel is singularly about Christ and what he has done for us. And then Paul emphasizes that the only thing we do is believe. It's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. You must believe it. It is heresy to add anything to the sole condition of believing. And note that Paul made a clear distinction between the gospel and baptism. I'm emphasizing this because so many are off track on on this uh, score. But notice here, as Paul wrote both of these, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize. That's one thing, but to preach the gospel. He makes a distinction between baptism and the gospel. So the gospel is the good news of Christ that we believe. This is how we receive the gospel, by believing it, by accepting it. This is an inward spiritual exercise, while baptism is something that is done as an outward physical work. We're not saved by works, including baptism. Only the gospel believed is the power of God unto salvation. Now, until the gospel is believed, we're in bondage. But the gospel delivers us. Believe. The gospel believed delivers us. And it applies to everyone, to everyone who believes. You see, the scope of the offer is universal. Note, it says, for everyone with the single condition of who believes. That's pretty clear. Very clear. Jesus, as a Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, died for everyone. But it is efficacious only to those who believe. However, it is efficacious to everyone who believes. There's no exception. If one is a true believer, they are delivered. And Christ alone has a deliverance ministry. Uh, I want you to notice this. Nobody can really deliver you from sin except Christ. I I am not the deliverer. Uh, You know, I don't care how many seances you have or whatever. uh, Not seances. uh, What do you call it? Uh, Exorcisms. (laughs) They're not the same thing. Uh, But uh, that's not a deliverance ministry. Christ alone can set you free. Uh, You shall know the truth, Christ says, and the truth shall make you free. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's Jesus who's the deliverer. That's why we call him the Savior. We can call him the deliverer. The Son sets people free. And he does it through his truth, through gospel truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, having been born again, how does it happen? Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, that inner work that is so intricate that we can't even really quite figure it out, the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, it goes deeper and does that spiritual work uh, that nothing else can do. But here is the deal. 
the gospel is all about Jesus and what he has done to save us. But the way we receive the good of it is by believing the gospel. The words believe, faith, and trust are all essentially interchangeable. The word believe, Greek uh, pestuo, means to adhere to, to rely upon, to put confidence in, to accept as true, to put trust in. Now, sometimes people say, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Well, such a person is lying. And they never really believe from the heart. You see, it works whenever it is truly believed. What does Paul say? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in who? In you who believe. If you believe it, it works. It doesn't work if you don't believe it. Now, it's still truth no matter what you do with it, but it effectively works in you who believe. Believe activates it in you. The gospel works effectively in all who believe it. It is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes, no exceptions. The great issue of human responsibility is that of belief. Says who? Well, let's refer to Jesus here, shall we? John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Why? Because he's not believed. In the name, the person of the only begotten Son of God. Three times in this verse, the issue is made to be that of belief. The reason people are condemned is because they don't believe. That's the only reason people go to hell, because they won't believe. Now, the gospel is for all without distinction of age, sex, race, or background. I don't care who you are. (laughs) It's, It's for you. The message of powerful deliverance is for all who will believe. No exception or distinction. Note the strong emphasis here is that it is the gospel itself, the gospel alone, that has this power. It's not about human arguments. I know you're brilliant in what you have to say, but it's not about that. It's not about mere human rationale. It's about God's message. Remember, he starts out by saying this is God's gospel. This is the message from on high. This is a message from God, and it's powerful. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It's not going to have an emptiness to it. But it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The power resides in the gospel. Now, I know it seems so foolish that people would just believe the simple gospel. But that explains that it is the power of God that makes it happen. This is God's method. This is God's way. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. I mean, that's how the world sees it. Ridiculously foolish. Message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the lost world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 21 Since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. In their brilliance, they never figure it out. It's a matter of revelation. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, as seen by the world, to save those who believe. This is God's method. And so Paul says in chapter 2, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Life-changing power. Uh, That message went forth with the Holy Spirit behind it. Demonstration of the Spirit. People believed. People's lives were changed. Demonstration of the Spirit. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's work. So the gospel is a God thing. God works miraculously through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. A demonstration of the Spirit is when a person transitions from unbelief to belief through the presentation of the gospel. You want to be in touch with power? Share the gospel. It's powerful. This is a result of the Spirit's powerful work in the heart of a person. 
Only he can do this work. I don't convert people. This is the work of the Spirit. Now, he uses the gospel. And God works this way so that he might get all the glory. And then Paul says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, there's some debate over this phrase. Some think this is stating that God has ordained a certain pattern for the entire church age. That is, that God has ordained that the gospel should continually be going forth first to the Jews and then also to the Gentiles. goes forth first to the Jews as, as first priority in missions, and then only after that should it go to the Gentiles. And they would argue that this is the order of Christ's ministry, It would also argue in the church age, the first five years of the church, it was essentially made up of Jewish converts. And then the pattern of Paul's ministry was that he consistently went first to the Jews in the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. Well, this is all true. This is all true. However, others argue that Paul is making a historical and chronological point that indeed the gospel did go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. The order in Acts 1.8 is first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, we bring in the Gentiles, and then to the end of the earth. At this point in church history, we are at the end of the earth phase of the mission. I think the spirit of this is that the Jews should always be a priority, but not exclusively. In blessing the Jew, as seen in Genesis 12, 3, we are blessed. And certainly a way we bless the Jews is to reach out to them with the gospel. Romans eleven fourteen, Paul says there that the goal of the Gentile conversions is to provoke the Jews to jealousy with the hope that some of them may be saved. So for sure, the Jews should remain a priority in evangelism. But repeatedly, we also see Paul telling the Jews that because of their rejection, he was turning to the Gentiles. And that's where he ended up with his emphasis as far as the the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is where the book of Acts essentially leaves off. Notice what happened there in the book of Acts. The the very end of the book of Acts, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it, because the Jews were rejecting once again. The story is told of Hudson Taylor. At the beginning of a new year, every year he would send a missions gift to John Wilkinson, who headed up a Jewish mission. And he would write on the check to the Jew first. And then Wilkinson would invariably write back. And he would send a check back to Hudson Taylor, who headed up the China Inland Mission. And he would write on the check, and also for the Greek. Uh, The spirit here is not either or, uh, but both. Note the emphasis in context on power, salvation, everyone who believes. And then Paul says, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, the word for here in verse 17 links to verse 16. And when he says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, the it here refers to the gospel believed. In the gospel believe, verse 16, the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17. Now this explains how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. In faith we are delivered from sin and granted a righteous standing before God. For Paul, acquiring a righteousness from God, a right standing before God, is the core of his gospel message. This, by the way, is the great issue in life. Ultimately, everyone here will be either right before God or wrong before God. Being right with God is the ultimate issue. The word righteous is a key word in the book of Romans, being found in one form or another 30 times, and in another related form, another 30 times. So it's a huge emphasis. The word righteousness is essentially the idea of rightness. You can see it has right right in it, right? Righteousness. So it refers to what is right. Now, God, by his very nature, is righteous. He is the very standard of what is right. The glory of God is the moral standard of the universe. The opposite of righteous is that of being wrong before God. The opposite of righteousness is really that of guiltiness. 
Now, in the Bible, there are two aspects related to the righteousness of God. There is a moral quality as found in and defined by God, and there is a legal status emphasis which we are required to live up to. Furthermore, the righteousness of God is revealed in at least two different ways. It is revealed in the law of Moses in that it presents an unattainable right standard, a God standard that reflects the unchanging moral law of God, or what I like to call the glory of God standard. But then from a different angle, the righteousness of God is also revealed in the gospel. Now, the righteousness of God, as revealed in the law, shows that we don't measure up to God's righteous moral standard. The legal standard of God's righteousness shows our moral failure of coming short. And this is where Paul builds to as we go into chapter 3. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. Can't defend yourself. All the world may become guilty. This is what the law does. It shows you your guilt. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned, fall short. What standard? The glory of God's standard. Within ourselves, the righteous standard demanded by God is impossible to meet. You can never make yourself right with God. Uh, Isaiah really drives the point home. Isaiah 64, 6, where we are all as an unclean thing in all our righteousnesses. All the right things about you, all the right things you do, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But now let us consider the righteousness of God in the gospel. More accurately, Romans 1.17 says, this is a righteousness of God. This is talking about a righteousness supplied from God. The source is God. He is the one who provides this righteousness, this right standing. The Bible refers to this as imputed righteousness meaning it is put to our account on the basis of faith. Notice, again, I'm jumping ahead, but Romans 3, 21, 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith. How do you acquire it? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who Believe. There's no difference. Something amazing happens in saving faith. Christ took all of our sin, and in saving faith, God puts to our account the righteousness of Christ. This is a key verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. He took our place. Our sin was put on Him on the cross to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is grace. Jesus took all of our sin. We get all of His righteousness. When we believe, when we put our faith in Christ, God counts us as righteous as Christ is righteous. You know how righteous that is? Perfectly righteous. His righteousness is put to our account. This is how God now sees you as a believer. No wonder this is called good news. Whenever a person believes the gospel, they are at that very moment made perfectly right before God. This is our standing before God. There seems to be a dual emphasis in view here. On the one hand, the righteousness of God in view in the gospel denotes a right standing, a legal standing, a legal status for all who believe. And this is what Paul talks about in his own personal testimony, Philippians chapter 3. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness. I don't have any, don't have any righteousness to offer up to God. It's all, it's all soiled. It's all stained by sin. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, trying to keep all the rules. But that which is through faith. In Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. However, there is also the aspect that in Doing so, God's moral character in the gospel is not compromised. His eternal moral right standard is upheld in the gospel. 
how can sinners be made right with God without God compromising his holy standard of righteousness? I mean, you can't just sweep this under the carpet and say, well, I'm just a grandfatherly type of God, and it doesn't really matter what you've done. You can't do that. So this is the great question. How can God make us righteousness, righteous, uh, give to us righteousness without compromising his holiness? Well, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. How can it be that holy God justifies, that is, declares righteous, the ungodly? Are you kidding me? Don't you have to in some way maneuver yourself into kind of a right position before God, before he can count you righteous? No! God justifies the ungodly, which runs counter to all natural thinking. All the false religion of the world essentially amounts to a work salvation, a means of somehow trying to make yourself right before God, or at least get yourself into a position where you say, okay, that's good enough. No. Only true Christianity presents salvation based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When you as a totally ungodly person put your faith in Christ, immediately God removes all your sin and gives you his righteousness. Note Romans 4, 5 says, To him who does not work but believes, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God accounts true faith as the basis for righteousness. The human response that God demands is faith. I mean, what did Abraham do? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it, his faith, righteousness to him. So in saving faith, God imputes his righteousness to us based on Christ's cross work, and his holy standard is met without compromise. Romans 3, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction, God was satisfied with this payment for sin, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He's right in doing this. He hasn't compromised his holy standards. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The merits of the death of Christ equals the righteousness of God, which is applied to those who believe in Jesus. This righteousness from God is a positional reality established for every true believer. Nothing will ever change this reality. I don't care how many times the accuser of the brethren shows up in heaven and begins to accuse you to high heaven. This will never change. Forever and ever, we are now right with God. By one offering, he has perfected forever. Hebrews 10, 14. But note what Paul now goes on to say. He says, this righteousness of God, this right relationship with God, is now revealed. Revealed from faith to faith. Now, this word revealed is a key word in properly understanding what Paul is saying. Note this word is in the present tense, emphasizing it is continually being revealed. This is an ongoing manifestation in relation to faith. Note the connection. Revealed from faith to faith. Well, how is this righteousness revealed? Well, from faith to faith. This is a combination of revealed with from faith to faith. So this is stated this way so that we might properly understand the sense of saving faith as communicated by Paul. From faith to faith is a good literal translation. 
But what does it mean? Well, there is no end of discussion concerning this phrase. And, and many commentators want to say it's obscure. I don't think it is that obscure, but that kind of seems to be the general consensus. So you might want to think about what I'm going to say here. (laughs) I think it perfectly communicates what Paul is wanting to say in terms of the nature of saving faith. Now, But here are some ideas put forth what uh, it means. From faith to faith. Notice, we've only got, is there 10 things listed here? Yeah. Um, I'll read them off my notes here. From the faith of the Old Testament to that of the New. Uh, And there's overlap here, but uh, from the faith of the preacher to that of the hearer. From God's faithfulness, faith in that sense, uh, to man's faith. From first to last, it's all by faith. What starts from faith ends in faith. Out of faith in reference to faith. It's merely an intensive form of meaning faith alone. Uh, From one person's faith to another person's faith. From a young faith to a mature faith. From initial saving faith to living to the living out of faith. Well, I've highlighted number 10 because I believe that's the correct view and I'm going to explain why. But just think about it. All the commentators and we're and sorting through just this phrase. Mercy. Uh, that, that could be a challenge and it is. But I'm convinced that number 10 is the correct view for a number of reasons. And W.E. Vine, I think, succinctly states the point correctly. From faith points to the initial act, to faith, to the life of faith, which which issues from it. Now, the first thing we should note is that while we often separate verse 17 from verse 18, there is a parallel contrast that is being drawn regarding revealed. On the one hand, a righteousness from God is being revealed through faith. On the other hand, the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So what do we have? Note the parallel contrast. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed where? From faith to faith. And then verse 18, the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Where? Well, in the lives of the people who are living this way. So the point is, Both faith and ungodliness reveal something. Faith reveals the righteousness of God in the life of the believer. And ungodliness reveals the wrath of God in the life of the unbeliever. The way the wrath of God is revealed towards ungodliness is that it gives people over to their depraved ways, resulting in all manner of gross sin being lived out. The way the righteousness of God is revealed is in the people of faith, in that they now live by faith as a course of life. And that makes all the difference. It's a life-changing faith. From faith denotes the starting point of faith, what we call saving faith. And this is where faith begins in a person's life, without which it is impossible to please God. True faith denotes growing faith and every aspect of faith that follows in a person's life. Thus, from faith to faith is the perfect way to describe the nature of a true saving faith that demonstrates itself in a person's life. The right kind of faith. There is a revealing reality in the nature of a true saving faith as it works its way out in the life. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. That's what James chapter 2 is all about. On and on. The obedience of faith, verse 5, results in justification, which then continues on bearing fruit in the life. That is the power of the gospel. Transform lives. This is the nature of a living faith. It is born out of the obedience of faith and then reveals itself in the life going forward. To show you all the more that this is the right understanding of from faith to faith, note Paul's clarifying quote from the Old Testament as seen in Habakkuk 2.4. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and then qualifies it by saying, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
really don't even have to put this quote up. It's quoted by Paul, but Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him. He's got a problem. He's got a pride problem. But the just shall live by his faith. Now, in quoting this key verse on faith, which is a key verse in the whole of the Bible, Habakkuk 2.4, in quoting this key verse on faith from the Old Testament, there has been great debate on exactly how Paul is applying it here in Romans 1.17. What's the exact nuance? Again, I read 40 commentaries in relation to this message. I mean to tell you, it's enough to make your head swim. But here's the two basic ideas. You see that one? There we go. (laughs) The righteous by faith will live. You have life by faith, eternal life. The other view is the righteous will live by faith. They, They will live out their faith. Both are true. And in the New Testament, Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4 three times. We're seen here in Romans 1.17, but then also in Galatians 3.11, and also in Hebrews 10.38. Now the challenge is this. In Galatians 3.11, Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 to emphasize that we are justified by faith alone. That is, that we have life through faith apart from works. However, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38... Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 to emphasize that a true saving faith continues. That is, a person with true saving faith lives it out. I don't have time to dissect these, but note 3.11, Galatians 3.11. No one is justified by the law, by doing. Uh, In the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back, he goes on to say, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. It continues. So Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 in both ways. And both are true. And that is the point. Both are true, and this reality is perfectly reflected in the language of Romans 1.17. It is consistent with from faith to faith, representing the fact that we have life the moment we come to faith. But then also this ushers in a life to faith, indicating a walk of faith. This is consistent with how the righteousness of God is revealed in the life of true believers. It is revealed in the life of faith, from faith to faith. Faith puts the reality of being right with God on display. The power of God in the life of believers is a life-changing power. Saving faith forever changes our relationship with God. We are now in a right relationship with God, and this reveals itself. We have life by faith, and then we live by faith. This is the nuance of from faith to faith, as seen in Habakkuk 2.4. John Stott says the only question is whether the righteous by faith will live or the righteous will live by faith. And then he says, are not both true? And I answer, yes, yes. In dealing with the meaning of Habakkuk 2.4, David Levy, who's with the Friends of Israel, writes, the, the word translated faith in this passage is immuna, which means firmness, faithfulness, fidelity. The word translated faith denotes faithfulness. Justifying faith will manifest itself in faithful living before the Lord. And then the Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, it may be best to enrich our idea of the New Testament meaning of faith from the Old Testament. You think so? I mean, is that, is that true? That's where Paul goes, to the Old Testament. Indeed, if many modern evangelical preachers would give to the word faith the meaning which the Hebrew word bears, there would be less superficiality in the profession and practice of Christianity. I want to say amen to that. Justification by faith became the watchword of the Protestant Reformation. And fittingly, the Reformers emphasized we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 1.17. This is the exact nuance of Romans 1.16 and 17. We are saved by faith alone, verse 16. But this faith that saves does not remain alone, verse 17. Note the harmony here of these verses. The gospel, verse 17, in it, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, 
in it, the righteousness of God, the gospel of God, and the revealing of it, of God, to everyone who believes, verse 16, revealed from faith to faith. Romans was a key book that brought the enlightenment of the gospel to light in the minds and hearts of the reformers. The just shall live by faith. This became their rallying cry. The Reformation became identified with what we call the five solas of the Reformation. I mean, it is as fine a basic doctoral statement as you will find anywhere. The word sola means only. The five solas of the Reformation, we ought to all know these. I mean, we are Protestants. But the five solas of the Reformation distinguish the Reformers from the teachings of Rome. And they are... What did I do? Leave out one? Come on. Yeah. But the five are in my notes. I have no idea what I did there. But sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solified, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And soli dio gloria, glory to God alone. I like this, uh, which makes the same point, but adds in a little bit here. Salvation or justification is by grace, not merit, by grace alone, through faith, not plus works, through faith alone, in Christ, not plus you, in Christ alone, according to Scripture, plus tradition, no, 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 according to Scripture alone. For God's glory, plus mine, no, for God's glory alone. These are the five solas of the Reformation. Well, let me ask you, are you a true believer in Christ? Have you believed in Him as your God Master, your Lord, and your Savior? The good news is all about Jesus. And the great issue before every person is whether or not they will believe in Him. A true saving faith is a life-changing faith. If you are sincere in your faith, God will change your life. The just shall live by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and indeed you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.